Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Music team, thank you so much for leading us in musical worship. Uh, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to come out and spend the first part of this week with all of you and be at this Christian ministry seminar. I was telling Israel, coming from Littleton Bible Chapel, I've heard so much about Emmaus Bible College and how so many people have been blessed through this school. I'm thankful to the faculty here. I'm thankful to Brother Israel for the invitation, and of course, a special thank you to Brooks for all your work and coordination. Um, thanks for uh, allowing me to, the privilege to worship the Lord alongside of all of you as well, and to open up God's Word with you uh, today and tomorrow. I want to consider in our time together a very important doctrine in the church, a very important doctrine, the one that's often neglected, either unintentionally or intentionally, a doctrine that's certainly relevant to the theme of this conference here. I want to talk with you about the doctrine of every member ministry, every member ministry. And and to do that, I'd ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 in our time together. So I'm going to read that. And I'm going to read it tomorrow. And I'm going to read it every time that we meet together because I want this to be ingrained into your mind. So we just heard the first six verses. Start with verse 1 where Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now just quickly, these next two verses, verses 11 and 12, these are going to be our hinge verses. These are going to be the key verses for our time today. And tomorrow, these are the verses I really want to emphasize and pray that you'll be edified by in our time together. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow together so that it builds itself up in love. Again, verses 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Let's dive right in here. Paul says in verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we know right from this text, uh, this is a text for, for those who have been what? Called. This text has universal application for and is directed to every single member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's exactly who Paul's writing to this, let- this letter to, Right? Uh, Members of Christ's church, capital C, the church universal. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. No, this is a letter that's addressed specifically to the saints at Ephesus in, in the supreme wisdom and wondrous sovereign will of our Lord. These words have been just as significant, just as meaningful for all saints throughout church history, and they're just as significant for each and every believer here today. If you're in this auditorium today, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you have been washed, cleansed, if you have been Uh, purified, made to be spotless in the sight of an infinitely holy God by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been regenerated, restored, redeemed, declared righteous and reconciled to your Creator through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, granted everlasting life by grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, then my brothers and sisters, you are a saint And the almighty God of the heavens and the earth has a word for you today and tomorrow. Regardless of your age, regardless of your class, regardless of your gender, your nationality, your personality type, if you are truly saved, this text this morning is for you. This text is for you. It's for the saints. It's for the holy ones, the beloved, the faithful, the chosen The elect of God, all believers, all children of God who were predestined to salvation from before the time began, from before the very foundations of the earth, as Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul used the term saint in his his introduction to this letter. He uses it again in our verse 12. He uses the, the same word some 40 times in his letters, never referring to an individual person elevated above the rest, by the way. That's a perversion and a distortion of the title used by the Catholic Church in their practice of canonizing people they deem worthy of some special honor. But that's by no means justified in Scripture. 
Paul uses this word to identify anyone, anyone who has been chosen by God, called by God, set apart for holiness, hagias, holy ones, which refer to, refers to all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I got to ask right from the get-go here, because I don't know any of you. You don't know me either. So let me just ask you, is this descriptive of your position? Have you been set apart for holiness? Are you one of the called men or women of God? And someone says, well, how do I know? Well, do you believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been saved by his grace? And you say, well, yeah, I'm at a Christian college, right? I mean, I mean uh, it's not just a Christian college in name only. I mean, this is a Bible college. This is Emmaus Bible College. Like, we go deep. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a saint. Well, well of course I'm a called man of God. I just got a 98 on my exegesis in the Greek New Testament exam. Of course I'm a, a called man of God. I don't smoke or chew or hang out with girls that do, Right? Of course I'm a called woman of God. I don't watch rated R movies. I dress modestly. I, I lead a women's Bible study. I'm planning on homeschooling my children. <laughs> well, I don't know that. I don't know what your background is. I don't know if you're only here because your folks thought this was one of the few remaining reputable theological institutions in the world. I don't know if you're here just because your church thought it was a good thing to recommend to you as you got out of youth group. I don't know that. I don't know if you're just here to keep playing basketball or soccer. Or I don't know if you just really wanted a good, solid theological education. I don't know. What I do know is that Paul is talking to the called men and women of God here. I know that this section of Scripture and subsequently the, the, these four messages that we'll spend together are for the called of God, the chosen of God, Christians. This section is for Christians. It's for believers. It's not for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, this section of Scripture is not for you. And if you don't know if you're one of the called... Honestly, I'd love to talk with you in the next couple of days. Come talk to me. I'll be around. I'd love to talk with you about the gospel. If you're not sure that you're one of the chosen of God, you should be sure. Uh, be sure before you leave this place today. Because you can know. You can be sure. In fact, the, the first three chapters of this epistle to the Ephesians is very helpful in explaining the foundational characteristics of a believer. Uh, the purpose of this letter was to declare God's will and plan for his church. First, through doctrinal instruction in the first three chapters. Uh, here's what it means to be called. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what's been done for you through Christ. Turn back to chapter 1. Turn, chapter 1. I'm going to hit this thing. I know I'm going to hit this thing. I'm sorry. Wouldn't be the first thing. Chapter 1, verse 3. Horexus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be called holy and blameless before him. That's the term saint. Set apart one. Set apart for holiness. Hagias. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are called to salvation by his sovereign will, according to his sovereign purpose, and we are called by his grace alone and for his glory alone. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the Riches of his grace, with he, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So I'm glad you're doing well in your Greek exegesis course. I really am. But, but have you been forgiven of your sin? Have you had your trespasses forgiven through Christ? I'm glad that you're here and you're getting one of the best educations in the country by some of the top professors and administrators in evangelical education. I'm truly glad about this. But has your Creator forgiven you of the multitude of sins that you have committed against Him? That's what I want to know. Have you had your sins forgiven by an infinitely holy God? Have your sins against this infinitely holy God been imputed or or counted against the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice which he provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what I want to know. And that's what we have to ensure before we go on because Paul has a target audience in mind here. Uh, This is for believers. This has universal application, not for everyone in the world, but for everyone in the church. The called of God, the chosen of God, those who recognize, along with Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's foundational. That's something I can build on, right? That's not like the sinking sands of this culture, uh, the shifting tides of this society. That's a solid rock I can build my house upon. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. Then we get the practical application in the last three chapters. First three chapters, here's the foundation of our faith. Faith. Last three chapters, here's the application of our faith. Chapters 1 through 3, here's what's been done for you through Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, here's what you are to, you are to do in light of what has been done for you in Christ by his amazing grace. And Paul, he'd know a thing or two about being called by the grace of God, right? The Apostle Paul, the great persecutor of Christians, was himself saved by the grace of God on the road to Damascus, on his way to gather up Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains, this uh, self-proclaimed chief of sinners, overseeing of, uh, approving of their executions, their persecution, their imprisonment. Ripping husbands away from their wives, mothers away from their children. Luke says he was ravaging the church. He was ravaging the church, those who were preaching and teaching in this name, but God called him on that road. God transformed his heart, and now he finds himself a prisoner for committing the very same crime, the very same offense, for following and openly proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing this particular letter uh, to the church in Ephesus from a Roman jail cell, likely right next to Dr. Luke. He says in verse 1, again, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And with all the time in the world on his hands, and much more importantly, through the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he pens this letter in chains. And as one preacher said, he gloried in these chains more than a king glories in his crown. He, he was grateful to be in these chains. He was thankful to be a prisoner for the Lord. And, and, and the purpose of this letter was not to ask for deliverance. It wasn't to ask for divine protection. He wasn't hoping that somebody would come and get him out of there or plead his case. Again, the purpose of this letter was to de declare God's will and plan for his church for his people. So he considered it an honor to be able to write this letter. And therefore, again, <clears throat> he writes in verse 1, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you have been called, if you have been chosen by God for salvation from before the very foundations of the world through absolutely no doing of your own, but only by his sovereign grace, if you have been called to be one of his sons or daughters, then walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner, which means go about your days. Uh, spend the <clears throat> remaining time, live the remainder of your earthly lives in such a way that is reflective of the new life that you've been graciously given by your creator. In other words, since you now belong to him, since you are now one of his, 
Uh, his honor is now at stake. Not just yours. His, his, his reputation is on the line. When people see you, they will see the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when people see you, they will see your creator. Therefore, how you live your life on this earth matters. It, it really matters. And how you live in the church matters. So Paul is urging He's pleading with these saints of Ephesus and all believers here this morning to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, how do we do that, Paul? How do we do it? Well, verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First, he says, walk with humility. Walk in humility. And how could we be anything but humble? We didn't earn our position of justification before a holy God. We didn't manufacture our calling or give God any reason to choose us. Again, he told us back in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Who we were before God had to intervene. He says you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, You are by nature children of wrath. We were dead men. We were dead women. Not a little bit of life, not a little glimmer of hope, not a a spark of divinity, not a teeny tiny little fraction of a cell of anything good that would cause God to, to save us. We were children of wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were walking corpses, is what we were. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. It it was the will of the Lord to place on his son the penalty that all of us so rightly deserve. Separation from the love of God. It was the will of the Lord to save us, to breathe into us a, a breath of life and awaken our mortal bodies through his spirit who now dwells in us. Knowing that, how could we be anything but humble? How could we possibly walk any other way than in humility? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me from before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. That's humility. That's humility. There are some so-called Christians out there who seem to look down upon others who are in the pit and don't seem to measure up to this new found standard of holiness, what, what short memories they have how quickly they forget that they too were in that same pit needing to be rescued. Could only be rescued by the merciful hand of God which was graciously extended down to yank them out of it. So Paul says, walk in humility. John Bunyan wrote, he that is down fears no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. And gentleness, Paul says. 
Walk with gentleness or meekness. Now, meekness does not mean weakness. It means a power that is under control, like a tamed beast, one who has power but now exercises restraint. That's meekness. S. Lewis Johnson observes how some horse jockeys after the race will say, oh, yeah, that horse was very meek. She was very meek. Have you ever seen a horse jockey? They're about, about that high. They're, they're just little guys. What do you think when they call this horse meek? The, this, are they saying that this thousand-pound beast who could buck them off into the next county is weak? No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying she's extremely powerful. She's exceptionally powerful, but it's a power that is under control. That's meekness. Our Lord said to his captors, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He says, I can destroy you all with my word. And yet, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's meekness. That's what Paul's referring to here. Be imitators of Christ who had a power under control. Be meek with one another. We, we have the power to destroy each other, okay? If not with the sword, then certainly with the tongue, right? But that would not be walking in a manner worthy of our calling, to be holy as he is holy. Paul also says we are to walk in patience, verse 2, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, so he calls for unity here. He calls for patience. He's saying, don't fight fire with fire. Don't retaliate against one another. Restrain yourselves from the prideful bantering and quarrels which sow seeds of division. Be long-suffering with one another as the one who called us is long-suffering with us. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You know, the Christian church, it can be a very hurtful place. I spent the majority of my life in the secular realm on construction sites and sales in corporate America. And I'll tell you this, I've never experienced and witnessed so much pain and hurt and conflict as I do in the church. Especially in leadership, people can be so nasty to each other in the church. Now, there's many joyful things, many wonderful things about the church, of course, yet I don't know what it is, but it seems like any... Anytime anybody walks through those doors, it seems like they have a license to say whatever they want. Even if they wouldn't say it to people outside of the church. I don't know why that is. Some of the stories I've heard over the past few years about how pastors treat pastors, members treat pastors, pastors treat members, and members of the body treat other members of the body are really unbelievable. Fights, quarrels, gossip, squabbles, splits, slander. Runs rampant in our churches, and Paul says, No, 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 no. That's not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. There should be humility, there should be gentleness, there should be long suffering, there should be patience, bearing with one another, another in love. In love. And we of all people should have unity, not division. Why? We'll look at verse 4 and watch now as he gives a mini-summary of the first three chapters. Here's our foundation. Here's our example. 
says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What's he saying here? There's one body. Who's the body? The church. That's right. Remember, he's with Dr. Luke here. He would have been very familiar with the body. And here, Paul uses this analogy of the body to describe the collective people of God. Various members of the body, which we'll talk about more tonight and tomorrow, uh, all of those who are his, all those who belong to him, are a part of his body. Everyone who is under the lordship and the headship of Jesus Christ, which is all believers. Christ is the head, and we are the body. The, The body carries out the instruction of the head. The head tells the body where to go. We all know how much a life a body has without the head, right? None. But not so with us. We've been given new life, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. We are alive. We are united. We are unified as a body, united under one head. There's one body, and what unites us? The one Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are all united together, okay? We're all tied together. Many of you know Alex Strout. He's given the illustration in the past that believers are like a climbing team. Scales an icy mountain. And all climbing teams are typically roped together. If one of them starts to fall, the other one will be there to what? Catch them. Not let them fall. Certainly not contribute to their tumbling down the mountain. That's not what a team does. She catches her sister. He bears the weight of his brother. He comes alongside of him in his time of greatest need. Uh, in the same way, there's this invisible rope that ties us all together. It ties to- together all believers throughout the church. We're all connected together if we're in the body of Christ. I just told you, I hardly know any of you, and yet we're all connected together. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all connected together by that same rope. And again, What is that rope, or who is that rope? The Holy Spirit of God. Person of the Holy Spirit. He unites us all together. He holds us all together. We are the body, all joined together. Very important. We are the body. We have a united hope, which is eternal life together in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom he references in verse 5. There is one body. The church. Christ said, I will build my what? Church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what he's done since he ascended back up to the right hand of the Father in bodily form. Ever since Pentecost, all the way to today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's been building his church with the called and redeemed children of God, his saints. One spirit unites the saints. Of course, there's one, only one spirit. And one hope which is the hope of eternal life through him and with him. We are a hope-filled people. Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We are a hope-filled people. There is only one Lord, Paul says. We see 
Here we see a reference to God the Son, the Lord. There is only one Lord, and he is head of the church. Peter said at his sermon at Pentecost, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And those who believed were indwelled with, baptized with the promised Holy Spirit of God, and united immediately to other believers in the one faith. The only way for true unity is through the one faith. We are saved through one faith, which is a gift from God, and one baptism. Now, some commentators have gone back and forth on this. Is this a reference to water baptism, or is this a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I would lean toward the latter. This is a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the initial once-for-all-time baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is true of all genuine believers. But I suppose that Paul's alluding to water baptism isn't out of the question either. <clears throat> we believers should be baptized. We should be fully immersed in water baptism. But I know it's true that not all believers have been baptized. But uh, even though we should, even uh, as has been said, the great Baptist preacher John Bunyan got his Christian to the celestial city without once being baptized. So again, I see this as the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So you have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then we see one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now if you notice right there in verses 4 through 6, we see all members of the Godhead displayed. Right? One Spirit, that's God the Holy Spirit. One Lord, that's God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and one God... And one God, that's God the Father. This is our foundation. This is what separates true believers, the church, the true body from all the other counterfeits in the world. It's all right here. One spirit. <clears throat> if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of you, you are not saved. You are not one of his. You're not part of the body of Christ. You're your own body. You will perish. You will die in your sins because you have not been washed and regenerated by him. Ultimately, you have no head. One Lord. Jesus Christ is not just Savior. He is Lord. The, the true spirit-indwelled believer submits his or her life to Jesus as Lord of their lives. We do not make him Lord of our lives at some point in our walk. He is Lord. <clears throat> meaning he owns us. He is master over our lives and, and souls, and we submit to him as such willingly and gladly. And verse 4 says, one God. And who is this God? God over all. Not some, but all. This is a foundational and essential doctrine. One God. Now here's a key distinctive, God the Father. He is a father, father of Christ and a father of to all those whom he has called. And if you don't believe in he, that he's the father, then you don't believe he is who he says he is. This is why I cringe every time I hear people say that Muslims and Christians have the same God. That Allah is the same God as the God of the Bible. That's just not true. That's not true. They don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We worship the one God and they worship their father, the devil. They don't have the rope 
of the Holy Spirit going through their carabiners because they don't believe in the triune nature of the one true God. And one day, unless they repent of their sin and believe in the gospel, one day they will tumble over the cliff to their own destruction where they will be separated from him for all of eternity. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling as one united body, just like God is united. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the foundation of the church. It's the foundation to genuine saving faith. We have to discuss the foundation before we can then move on to his will for our lives on the earth and our lives in the church. Does that make sense? We're going to slow it down now a bit tonight and tomorrow, but it all had to be said, okay? Even though there are some hard truths, we all have to be on the same page here. Are you a called man or woman of God? Are you saved? Or is it like, when's brunch or breakfast or second breakfast? Have have you been born again? Don't leave this place without being sure that you have been born again. You could literally die at any moment. People don't think about it. Have you been born again? Have you been made to be alive by grace through faith? If so, then we'll continue to look at the application of that faith and even look together at how Christ has given gifts to those who belong to him, both individually and as a collective people, as his body. If you have not been saved, if you have not been given new life in Christ, if you do not have his spirit dwelling on the inside of you, I would invite you to come to him this morning. Yes, we were all by nature children of wrath, born into this corrupted and cursed world with an original sin nature, which condemns us to an eternity separated from the love of our creator in the eternal torments of hell. Yes, but by his amazing grace, By his abundant mercy, by his steadfast love, he has found a way to, he he provided a way to reconcile sinful men and women to himself. So I would invite you, if you have never done so, repent of your sin. Turn from this fleeting world and turn to your creator through the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for reconciliation to the Father. Ask him to forgive you of your sinning against him for not living up to his perfect standards for your life and then place your trust in the only one who has the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way. And again, I'm happy to talk with any of you in detail in our time together here. Amen? All right, please pray with me and then we'll have the music team come up and Lead us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you again for this time. We thank you for the immeasurable riches, your amazing grace, your steadfast love that that you have just, in your infinite wisdom, had mercy on us. You you called it your enemies at some point. We're just amazed at this. We're in awe of your gospel. We're in awe at your Son. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would move in their hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would awaken them to the reality of their own mortality and the reality of their own sin. 
and that you would cause them to be born again. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.